I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? Hey, Seth. I think I'm doing all right. I work in education, and the summer's supposed to be a break. But school's starting, and I'm already so tired. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll be reading books for the rest of our lives, assessing the impact of the past year and a half on generations to come. And just thinking about, you know, I have a new niece and nephew. My sister had twins that were born in July, earlier this summer. And, like, just thinking about the world that they're going to grow up in and how different it's going to be. I don't know. That got really deep in the intro. Uh, Maybe we should, maybe we should lighten it up a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's lighten it up with what would you do in this particular situation would you want to eat dog food or eat a steak that fell on the floor well (laughs) (laughs) i don't know much about dog food winnie eats a fish and potato dog food but it's still in the same like generic brown kibble yeah (laughs) that i don't know dog food just kind of freaks me out there's meat and all the this stuff but it's all hard and crunchy and i don't understand so i'd probably go with the floor steak (laughs) (laughs) you know i think i'm going with the same what was your reasoning you just didn't want to eat the dog food yeah dog food just feels about as dirty as floor steak would be So I might as well just eat a steak, you know. I went with the steak because I thought a couple bites in, maybe I could convince myself that it didn't fall on the floor. I could push that out of my mind. But like one bite into the dog food, it's still going to taste like dog food. It's it's still going to be dry, like dusty, brown, processed meat product. I don't have a Well, with that, would you want to read our passage for today? I would love to. We've been on such a journey so far in this episode, and I can't wait to see where we go next. This is Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. From there, he, being Jesus, set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet, he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him 
to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. What an interesting passage. Before we get into it, tell us about your choice for the NRSV this week. Okay. I went with the NRSV this week because what we have is already a complicated enough passage. And what I wanted was for our our text not to add any additional kind of levels of difficulty. I just wanted the text to be as maybe as close to the Greek as we could get to give us as as great of a head start as we could possibly have for this difficult text. And I thought that the NRSV did just that for us. So with that, what did you notice in this short passage? Well, I'm reasonably familiar with this passage. I've encountered it a number of times. I think it's really interesting. And I'm sure we will talk about, I would say, Jesus' behavior in this passage. Because, at least with my modern lens, it feels really inappropriate. But honestly, the phrase that stood out to me was the beginning of verse 28. But she answered him. And I don't want to understate the significance of the fact that this woman who was kind of a uh, triple threat in terms of her her lack of privilege in this particular space. She was an unwanted guest, she was a woman, and she was a Gentile in presumably a Jewish household. And yet here she was begging Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter, to heal her daughter. And for her to respond to jesus's really harsh words just takes a level of courage and assuredness that really stands out to me and what strikes me about her response is that sometimes when the pharisees try and trap jesus and ask him a question and he responds they just don't even answer like they just run away yeah but then we have this woman who does answer it's, it's interesting to me, too, to hear how her daughter is spoken about, too. Hmm. Wait, say more about that. There are two women in this story, right? Yeah. There's the woman who is present and the woman who is not, her daughter. They're both Syrophoenician and they're both dependent on Jesus for what they need. And it's so interesting to contrast, at least in my mind, and maybe I'm making more significance of this, than is actually there. But for Jesus to make this statement about letting the children be fed first, presumably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, talking about the children of Israel and playing into this really hate-filled relationship between Jews and Gentiles in Jesus' time, for him to speak about that to a Gentile woman asking for her daughter 
to receive something. Mm-hmm. To make that direct comparison adds another layer of, I think I would just kind of call it shock. <laughs> just like, yeah. You kind of finish this passage and my jaw is on the floor. And yet for her to, with such audacity, respond to Jesus, to play into this language that he's putting out there and respond to him in a way that prompts him to apparently abandon everything he had already (laughs) said and just say, yep, right answer, you're good to go. (laughs) I don't know. I, I just think that contrast, though, of thinking about this this woman's daughter, the woman who's the second woman in the passage, to Jesus's language about the children of Israel being fed first. It just is really striking to me. The CEB translates our last line. Then he said to her, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. It translates it, good answer, with an exclamation point. <laughs> He said, go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. Hmm. One of the ways that people have interpreted this text is that Jesus is offering a sort of test. That when the woman replies with her kind of like quick-witted aphorism that she passes, she's, she's correct. But I just can't see Jesus putting a test in the way of healing just one of the ways i think that either some of the context for this story has gotten lost but i also think it evidences the way that mark and the early church is might be thinking about jesus in a way that i'm not or maybe i should say i've been conditioned to think about jesus by lots of theologians who keep telling me how he's absolutely perfect and he never makes any mistakes, and he wouldn't offer a test. And I have all of those things that I automatically come to the text with. Yeah. This story is a test of me and my baggage. Mm. So it is a test. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, Seth, I think we've we've, uh, kind of hinted at it some, but the portrayal and the language that Jesus uses here it was pretty common for the Jews to view Gentiles, especially Gentiles in Israel, with such disdain, right? That's absolutely correct. And even calling a Gentile a dog is not entirely out of place in that context. So some people have suggested like what he's doing is kind of showing the way that the culture excludes others. Like he uses... he. Jesus adapts this phrase kind of to show how it's derogatory. He uses the phrase, and then in the next line, he erases it, if I can say it that way. He says, oh, look, she's a dog. And then the next line he says, but wait, I'm going to heal her daughter because she's not actually a dog. She's not a dog to me. Maybe... Maybe society labels her that, but that's not true in this new realm and kingdom that I'm here as a part of. I I think there is part of me that wants to think that Jesus was kind of undermining 
this bigotry in a way, if I can yeah, use that modern yeah. label. There's also part of me, though, that wants to give as much credit as possible to the Syrophoenician woman. It almost feels like maybe Jesus opened the door or Jesus lobbed a slow pitch softball. <laughs> but if it's an open door, she ran right through. Yeah. If it was a softball game, she just absolutely crushed it. That perhaps it was a test. But there's also something to say here about this woman's persistence. That she could not be stopped hmm. from achieving what she sought to achieve. I do think some of some of that dynamic that you mentioned of Jesus undermining all this stuff is part of this. But if it's if anything's clear to me from this story, it's that this woman claimed agency in a space where she should have had absolutely zero. And by doing so, she gained exactly what she came came for. It feels like Jesus came proclaiming freedom for the captives, liberty to the oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind, this kind of upending of these systems of oppression. And here Jesus provided an avenue for the oppressed to flip some mm-hmm. of that system on its head, mm-hmm. in this case, herself. Yeah. And who knows the kind of scandal that this story may have caused, mm-hmm. either in the narrative, if if this was something that happened at an actual person's house, or if it was portrayed to a community that heard this story as an example of what Jesus was like, they said, wait a minute, what did he do? <laughs> what did she say to him? I don't know. I, I want to give her as much credit as possible. I do too. I've been thinking about her as a theologian, that even when she stands in front of the incarnate God, She's thinking about what God is like and who's deserving of healing and of love and that she's willing to fight for the people who she knows God loves. There's, there's part of this that maybe not to quite as dramatic an extent, but this reminds me of Jacob wrestling in the wilderness. Yeah. yeah. And it's in like that you, situation. It's like you have Jacob. to stay there until you get the blessing. To wrestle with it. Well, was there anything else from this passage? Any any digging that you did that you thought was worth mentioning? Or do you want to start talking about the or a point of this story? I think we've done a wonderful job talking about this text. Like I said in the, the outro of our last episode, I think that this is one of the toughest texts in the entire New Testament. Again, it seems like maybe we're missing something or that Jesus comes across in a way that is is not like the Jesus we're used to seeing. But I also think that that, it, that makes us ask questions. I think that is the blessing of this text. Just like Jacob you were talking about, we have to kind of wrestle with it until it blesses us. Mm-hmm. So I've been thinking about this, like I just kind of alluded to, that the woman is a sort of theologian. And I wondered, who is a theologian? Hmm. And obviously, I think the answer is, okay, well, everybody. 
But I wonder if we could unpack that maybe a little bit more about what what kinds of things can form us as theologians and what what is the role of a theologian? Well, the first thing that strikes me about this passage, Seth, is how striking our level of privilege is in conversations about who is a theologian. You set aside our respective theological educations and also think about when we are in a space religious of or otherwise, how likely it is that people will listen to us as people with authority. That combination, I think, sets the stage for what can be some really unfortunate power dynamics. Because we've seen too often that the world of theology, the world of thinking about and studying and writing about God and who God is and what they're up to in the world, that's been so limited to a particular area of academic scholarship. I would say in a general discipline of academia and a specific discipline of theological studies that has been plagued as every other institution by white supremacy. And so as people who exist in that system and benefit from it, I think our comparison to opening the door for other theologians or for other theology and theologies, not necessarily to take shape thanks to us, but to allow those voices and those stories to be amplified and heard because they're already there and they're already taking shape. That's what this story reminds me of. It almost feels like we are, I say this carefully, but we're Jesus in this situation. We are in a position of privilege. And by pointing out something about this dynamic, we can create an avenue. We can open the door. We can toss the slow pitch softball for folks in the queer community, in other communities of color, in communities that are oppressed, in communities that are seeking literal, physical liberation in this world. We can give them the opportunity to run through that door, proclaiming the ways that they are seeing God alive and at work in our world. It feels like taking that privilege to kick down those doors feels like a pretty important task for us. Even if we're only thinking about this, and I say only carefully too, only thinking (laughs) about this as a question of who's doing theology. Yeah, it's important to remember who has historically been dominant in theological conversations and who's been left out historically and as a result still left out today i had wondered you know what makes people a good theologian i've been thinking about it specifically with the syrophoenician woman and i just wonder if it isn't somehow that her daughter and the pain that she sees her daughter experience and the love that she has for her daughter if that doesn't somehow sharpen her theological scalpel, it's her, it's the way that she's embedded in the world that helps her to see the ways that God is active and the ways that we need to act too. Sometimes our positions of privilege have made the discussion of theology so academic so kind of removed from the everyday life. These questions 
that are sometimes like, well, what what is the Trinity like? That those those are genuine questions, but they don't make for the best theologians. That was kind of hard for me. <laughs> I think I think you're spot on though, because it's really interesting to contrast theology that is informed by pain with theology that is in pursuit of power. Hmm. And that's what it feels like you're setting up here. Yeah. So often we think that becoming the best theologian means we understand God the best. When I at least think that the theologians that I respect the most realize how little they know of the grandeur of God and how deeply personal the work of theology is. And I think we see an incredible example of both of those things in the Syrophoenician woman in this story. I so badly wish she was named. Yeah, me too. Neither she's named nor her daughter. Maybe I'm going to challenge myself to do this. That when we have another story in which we have a woman who's not named, or sometimes there's blind men who aren't named, or deaf men, or um, people who suffer from leprosy who are unnamed. I'm going to challenge myself to name them. Like, to at least give them a name. Because I think that that can make it so much more personal. This is this is kind of an aside, but my wife and I have this subscription to this this kind of online grocery store called Thrive Market. And when they package all of your goods, someone signs it with their name, whoever packaged your box. And I find that to be so small, but yet also profound, because that never happens with Amazon. I'll just say, they, they don't want you to remember that there's someone on the other side who had to get the tiny USB cord that you ordered because you wanted it with next day shipping. They don't want you to, to remember that someone ran four miles across the warehouse. But that when we, when we name people, when we see their names, it's, it makes it much more real. So the reality is still that someone works in that warehouse. But at least I know that his name was Ian. Yeah, and for the woman, or the women in our story today, I think the starting point for that that practice needs to be to remember that they they are named that they yes they yes. are named <laughs> it is just that someone who was writing this down decided not to include their name and i think i think us us giving them names for our our reflections and conversations is important but also to remember that that doesn't mean it's actually their name too yeah because <laughs> yeah, yeah. agree but, yeah. but i but I'm, I'm, I'm right on board with you there. I've done this before, and it does help, both for a shorthand reference to say one name rather than the Syrophoenician woman, uh, but, but also to try and humanize and remember the humanity, the humanity that Jesus surely recognized in this moment, even in spite of some of the words that came out of his mouth in this story. <laughs> yeah. And I think this practice of naming people as an effort to humanize them can affect our everyday lives, too. To remember the person packaging our groceries, 
to remember the person who cut us off in traffic. <laughs> to remember our boss who makes our day that much more frustrating again. It's not where I thought that one was going. <laughs> you were like, who makes our day that much more frustrating? <laughs> <laughs> Either way, that practice of, but that practice of seeing folks as Jesus saw them, identifying the moment and identifying their humanity and their need in that moment. That's something I think we need to work on and definitely something I think we need to pray about. We pray with me, Jonathan. I'd love that. Gracious God, you cherish our pets because even greedy humanity cannot hoard all of your love. Help us, regardless of our training, to be theologians who see the world through the lens of this love. And in doing so, empower us to reject ideologies that see others as outside the bounds of your overflowing grace. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Jonathan, what story will we tell next week? I can't stay away. So next week we're going back to the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Seth. Thanks for helping me tell it.